Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share their most recent work. This week, I had the honor of chatting with Michelle Gelfand, professor of organizational behavior at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Michelle's culture lab studies the strength of cultural norms, negotiation, conflict, revenge, forgiveness, and diversity, drawing on many, many different disciplines. Michelle is world-renowned for her work on how some cultures have stronger enforcement of norms, tight cultures, while other cultures are more tolerant of deviations from the norm, loose cultures. She's the author of Rule Makers, Rule Breakers. In this chat, we discuss the latest insights into loose and tight cultures, what academic disciplines are tight versus loose, and how this framework explains phenomena as disconnected as COVID fears, the appeal of populist leaders, and why Ernie and Bird have so many disagreements. Michelle then shares how she stays so passionate and productive, the barriers she has faced trying to be so interdisciplinary, how she deals with setbacks, and why she sometimes dresses up as a pickle. <laughs> Hope you enjoy this conversation. Very excited today to be talking with Michelle Gelfand about all things culture and your personal journey. Very excited to be here. Thank you so much for making the time. Great to be here. Let's start with everyone's favorite topic, definitions. You are maybe most famous for work on what is called tight versus loose cultures. What are those cultures? How are they different? And what is a recent example from your life where you were in a moment and realized, hmm, this environment is pretty tight or pretty loose. <laughs> okay, let me just back up and say I'm a cross-cultural psychologist. And for many years, I was studying values, individuals and collectivism, greater vertical and horizontal elements of that with Harry Triandis, my mentor. And I started getting really interested in social norms, these unwritten rules for behavior that sometimes get more formalized in terms of codes and laws. And it's fascinating because all cultures, we think, have social norms. In fact, you can kind of imagine a world where we don't have social norms. What a crazy mess that would be. Imagine people driving on either side of the street or not obeying stop signs or stealing pe food off people's plates in restaurants or having sex like all over the campus at Stanford <laughs> or anywhere. There's a reason why we don't do this. It's because we have these social norms that really help us to predict each other's behavior, to coordinate with each other. Really, they're the glue that keep us together, social norms. And I started thinking about social norms back in the early 90s when I was a grad student. In fact, my first paper on tight loose was in a class with Harry that was an undergrad class. I was a grad student, but I wanted to take any class with him as possible. So I wrote my paper on tight loose. And the idea is that while all cultures have norms, some cultures more strictly adhere to these norms. We call them tight cultures. And other cultures have more permissiveness. They have a wider range of behavior that is seen as appropriate. And I started really getting fascinated with this construct. It was first discussed by Pierre Topelto, who was an anthropologist in the late 60s, who studied 20 plus traditional societies in terms of tight loose. And I started investigating it really as a fractal pattern. This is a metaphor that comes from physics. Really, it's just about repeated patterns across different levels of analysis from the most macro level, like nations to the most micro level, to the neuron. <laughs> From nations to neurons, we've been really interested in how we can think about the strength of social norms. What predicts this construct? What are its consequences, its trade-offs? How does it change over time and with what consequence? 
And so I could get into the details of that, but I will say that a recent episode really is more at the individual level. So at the individual level, we think about tight and loose mindsets. I think I asked you yesterday to take the tight and loose mindset quiz that's on my website. And this is actually a quiz that's taken from the science paper that we published, the first uh, analysis of tight and loose across nations. And the individual level is really around how much you feel accountable to people around you and are monitoring your behavior and like structure. These are the tight mindsets of them of us versus do you not really notice rules? Are you a little more impulsive, maybe a little bit more tolerant of ambiguity? We use the kind of order versus chaos Muppet theory to describe huh. this. So you think about Bert and Kermit being tight and Ernie and Cookie Monster being loose. And you know, I took my own quiz, which is really a combination of different attributes at the individual level that help you fit into or maintain the level of tight loose that is really comprised in your local context. Uh, even if we can change or become kind of Bert or Ernie, depending on the context, uh, we each have our own default based on our own backgrounds. And I score moderately loose on my own quiz. And my husband, who's a lawyer, as you can uh- imagine... He's pretty tight. And in fact, one of our biggest sort of marital conflicts, even though we've been married for 29 years, is how I load the dishwasher. And he gets very deeply disturbed by how I load the dishwasher. It's, he really is almost offended. Like, how can you think that this is a way that you could be loading the dishwasher? And he sometimes reloads the dishwasher. In fact, this happened recently. And so it's just funny. Actually, in our household, my daughter is also very untight. We talk about it quite a bit. I have a daughter, Jeanette, who's 22, Hannah, who's 19. And we constantly joke about it. And in fact, it's really funny to hear them like code tight loose around them. Like we were just watching Finding Nemo and we're like, oh yeah, the the, the mother fish is definitely tight and <laughs> the baby fish Nemo is loose. And it, it's just kind of interesting construct that you start seeing around you. It's like a flashlight that you can use to illuminate dynamics around you. So that's the most recent episodes of tight loose in our family. It's been really helpful for me to learn about my own journey through this framework. So I am from Germany originally, and now I'm living in California. And I remember one episode in Germany, I had just moved into my new apartment in Berlin, and I had assembled all the furniture during the week. Everything's fine. But then Sunday afternoon, there was one more hole to drill. So I did it. It was like 30 seconds. And then I hear my doorbell ring. I was like, okay, meet the neighbor. Now on Sundays. Oh, no. Oh, I have never seen a person so angry. I thought her head was going to explode. Completely red in her face, yelling at me for 15, 20 minutes, what felt like a whole day. How dare I violate the house regulations of when to drill? Just whole drama, whole situation. And then in California, we, maybe a little bit inconsiderate, we had a party on a Friday night. It was going very long. Music was very loud. I hear the doorbell ring. And I was like, oh no, (laughs) immediate flashback. (laughs) My German mindset comes through. Oh God person standing there hi i'm the neighbor i hear your music and he's holding his hand behind his back and i'm like this is america he's going to shoot me i'll be dead no not what happened he revealed as a wine bottle and he asks can i join (laughs) no it's hard to generalize across cultures and to compare like that but i feel like understanding that in germany rules are very tight people really care about rules to an extent that in california if anything you're celebrated for being a rule breaker it's a really helpful understanding great example too because it highlights a couple of things one is that when we first started embarking on this research people were asking is this just collectivism is tightness just collectivism and in fact harry thought collectivism and tightness would be correlated at point four and actually in the science paper that's exactly what it was i, I remember calling him and saying oh my gosh like 
always listen to your mentor. And in, in the state level of analysis, it's a little bit smaller. In pre-industrial societies, it's even lower. But Germany is a great example of a country that is on the off diagonals. It tends to veer individualistic, where privacy and independence is really prioritized, but it's also quite tight. Austria is another context that falls into that quadrant, generally speaking, even though we can zoom in to Germany or Austria and find tight and loose pockets, like in any culture, including Berlin, which is looser for sure. But then you also have cultures that are another part of this off diagonal that were collectivistic and loose. In our data, that includes context in Latin America. I just took 25 MBAs to Brazil. Really interesting ecosystem of very strong family orientation, but also quite loose in terms of social norms. Spain also falls into that quadrant, generally speaking, in our data. So you can just start thinking about how you decouple this. And the other thing that's really just interesting about your journey is just often, like, you know, culture is like invisible. It's all around us. It's omnipresent, but we don't really notice it until we actually get outside of it. And then we start reinterpreting, wait, wow, I didn't realize I've been so profoundly socialized by the norms and values in my culture. And then as you acculturating, we can talk about expatriation, we'll be doing quite a bit of work on that. You start realizing, well, you start adapting in ways and perhaps becoming more ambidextrous. This is a term that we're using right now, tight, loose ambidexterity, where you have both elements of tight and loose. And that is actually helpful in terms of like creativity, but also in terms of ad adaptation. This raises two interesting points. One about the rigidity of these norms and these mindsets as an individual that you can have. And two, if there's individual mindsets and collective uh, cultures, there can be a clash. So I can, be, I can have a loose mindset, but be in a tight culture or the other way around. That's right. And what's interesting to me is when I took your test and I was telling you about this yesterday, I was really shocked at scoring an 81 out of, I think, 100. And the higher the score, the more tight my mindset is my understanding. Right? Mm -hmm. I scored an 81. Right. And I left Germany in part because I was constantly bothered by how uptight everyone is and how petty about the rules. And now I'm scoring this high. And it, it makes a little bit of sense. In California, everyone's very, it's very flaky. <laughs> I'll be at your party, sure. And then they yeah. don't show up and I keep being surprised by it. And then I'll say something like, huh, see you next time. But in my head, I'm like, this is anarchy. Everything will fall. No wonder this country is falling apart if no one sticks to the rules anymore. But it's a certain mindset. You're like the rule ambassador now. Yeah. I think what you, you raise a really important point. A lot of people ask me, what's better, tight or loose? And the answer is really neither because it really depends on your criteria. We call this the trade-off of tight loose. The tight loose trade-off is about how much people and groups and entire nations emphasize order versus openness. And tight cultures really corner the market on order. Like they tend to have more coordination, less crime. They have more self-regulation, less debt, less obesity. In fact, are skinnier, <laughs> controlling for other factors mm -hmm. uh, and have less, as I mentioned, have less debt. Loose cultures struggle with coordination. They struggle with crime. They struggle with self-discipline and self-regulation. They have a host of self-regulation problems. But they corner the market on openness. They tend to be more tolerant. They tend to be more creative in terms of idea generation. And they tend to be more adaptable in terms of computational models that we run. When we enter a new norm into the population, it tends to take off more quickly in looser culture. So it's really a trade-off of order and openness. And I think it's a really exciting challenge to think about how do we create systems that maximize both? Imagine a world where we have both the empowerment that comes from looseness, but the accountability that comes from tightness. And of course, when we could get into what are the predictors, there's a real, there's an interesting rationale for why cultures evolve the way they do, which makes it such that you might 
need to lean tighter or looser depending on your ecosystem and way less one of these components less than another, way order more than empowerment or way empower more than order. But the more extreme you get on the continuum, and in fact, we have data to suggest this kind of curvilinear relationship between tight, loose and well-being at the societal level. We know that the extremes are bad, like getting either too tight or too loose is problematic. And in fact, it's because we are starting to really mess with that trade-off. And so we want to try to create systems that have both empowerment and accountability in my book. And I'm really thinking a lot about that. We could talk about it later. What, what, a lot of the work we do now with the U.S. Navy and other contexts, we're trying to figure out how do we negotiate tight loose? How do we pivot when we need to? What does leadership look like in that context? How can you be ambidextrous? So that's the big picture of the kind of, is which is better? Yeah, that question of which is better is also very context independent if you ask it like this and expect to have a clear answer. And I feel like part of the understanding of why cultures differ, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, not just good for creativity, but it's also useful. It's because they evolve to different circumstances. And what predicts if you're going to be more tight or more loose as a culture has to do with threat, if I understand that correctly. Yeah, that's right. So when we first started investigating this at the societal level, we are putting our money, actually putting NSF's money, on a pretty simple idea, which was that maybe there's cultural evolutionary pressures that really help us understand why tight and loose cultures evolve. And the idea was pretty simple, which is that, as I mentioned earlier, rules help coordinate. They serve a coordination function. So anytime you really need a lot of coordination, you should see tightness evolve. And that could be as a function of objective threat. It could be a function of Mother Nature's fury. Think about Japan, natural disasters, chronic problems with arable land. Think about also human types of threats, like how many times your nation's been potentially invaded by its neighbors. Nana, my daughter, actually asked me that question once years ago. She's a mom, but we worried about Mexico and Canada invading us. And I'm like, sweetie, like you need to relax, first of all. Like you're like six years old. Like she probably heard me talking about this stuff. But the idea is like pretty simple is that when you have a lot of threat, you need these, you need rules to help coordinate for survival. And uh, cultures around the world don't like randomly experience threat. Some cultures around the world experience a lot of chronic ecological threat, a lot of uh, man-made threat, human-made threat. And that's exactly what we measure. We measure, for example, how many times in the last hundred years have you been potentially invaded using the International Crisis Archives? We measured natural disasters. We measured, we measured density. Like Singapore is has 20,000 people or more per square mile compared to New Zealand that has 60 people per square mile and more sheep per capita than people. Yet again, here is that you can think about there's a lot of potential chaos when you have population density. So we measure this as far back as 1500. And we saw a correlation with the amount of objective threat that countries have. In fact, we factor analyze the threats at the national level. We could see contexts like Japan are, have a lot of threat, and it's really pretty super tight culture. This was just a correlational data, but later we started partnering with evolutionary game theorists, which is really a very exciting intellectual marriage. We wrote an American psychologist paper about this marriage recently, because it's really about trying to understand causality at the population level. It's not like priming in the lab. It's looking at how things evolve over time. Uh, and here we could look at manipulate threat and we can look at evolution of cooperation and punishment and so forth. So there's other threat predictors. Mobility tends to be related to looseness. If you're in a context that's constantly people moving around, it's harder to agree upon norms. Uh, diversity is also a factor that predicts looseness up to a certain point. Um, and even rice versus wheat, <laughs> as Thomas Telham has recently published, 
also relates to tightness. And again, it's because of the need for coordination, right? It just requires a lot of coordination. So you can think about this at the national level, but then you start zooming into organizations and start thinking about, okay, which occupations or organizations might need more coordination and might have more public accountability where people really need to follow rules and coordinate. And we could start using that flashlight to try to analyze tightness at any level of analysis. We could also activate it in the lab, priming people. So we know that in our data, we've been starting to look at this. We were looking at this objectively, like in terms of amount of conflict, amount of disasters, but that doesn't mean it can't be manipulated. And it seems like a very fine line between what elements are adaptive versus not adaptive in response to threat. So let's say my tribe is being attacked by another tribe and my tribe becomes more tight. We enforce certain norms of loyalty and cheater detection. And are you really going to defend us? Are you going to yeah. be caught within the group, compete against the other group? You could see how these elements would be adaptive. But yeah. it seems like once a culture becomes tight, they become tight about everything. They might also start being tight against any sort of deviation. It's like, what does that have to do with anything? But it seems like yeah. it somewhat overgeneralizes in yeah. all kinds of ways. And then it's pretty sticky, I guess. Some people could say in a yeah. way that's it's always adaptive. Yeah, it's a great point. You can think about silly norms. In fact, we've been looking at the evolution of silly norms. Shinwei Pan and Dana Now and I and our EGT psychology, cultural psychology team. Uh, and these are norms that really don't really have a function, but they tend to co-evolve with other really important norms. For example, in the Navy, there might be some really important rules around what socks you wear or what haircut you have. And it doesn't seem really functional, but it starts to co-evolve with signaling that one is willing to really abide by the really important rules on the battlefield. But you're right, this is a norm spillover. And in fact, a recent paper that we just published, we went back to pre-industrial societies, we went back to the human relation area files, which I was very just so admiring of this database that anthropologists have put together. It's really long-winded ethnographies. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a great data source. And we coded 85 ethnographies from small-scale societies to see if we can replicate conceptually and extend tight-loose theory into pre-industrial societies. And we measured tight-loose there in terms of domains like socialization, gender, sexuality, ethics, even funerals, like all domains that anthropologists write about. Got a lot of gray hair from the study. I now dye it because it's <laughs> a lot of work. But what we, we're interested to see, is there a coherence? Is there, do this factor into one factor or is there, no, there's certain norms that are tight and others to be used. But in fact, even in that database, there was a strong underlying factor. So it, when you tended huh. to have tightness, in one domain, you tended to have it in other domains. Huh. But to your point, we can start thinking about what a context that escaped that kind of coherence that have really selected certain context to be loose, even if they have to be tight or vice versa. And sorry about that. So I think that it's a really interesting question that it tends to, over time, there tends to be these kind of um, coherence that evolves. And as you say, these perceptions can be manufactured. So it's not about actual threat, it's about perceived threat. And when you say that tightness is all about control and order, there are some people who really like to be in control of other people. And so it's quite convenient for these people, these could be populist leaders, for example, of course, to create narratives of fear and threat, even invent a threat, and then rally up everyone around that threat. Mm -hmm. How then can we, as the population, in times of actual threat, differentiate between leaders who might actually be strong leaders and get our culture to survive in adaptive, wonderful ways? How can we differentiate those people from people who just create these narratives for their own personal gain, these 
strongmen who will then turn into dictators and differentiate between the two. Yeah, this is such an important question. And it speaks to a broader perspective that we've been writing about, which is on cultural evolutionary mismatches. And this is a concept, evolution mismatches, that comes from evolutionary biology. Really interesting idea of, in some contexts, certain traits and values that were super adaptive become really maladaptive as the environment changes. There's a great example of the dodo bird that was like this very friendly bird in Mauritius that just welcomed, as humans came to the island, they were so nice and friendly, but guess what? They got wiped out. Like that response was not adaptive in that environment. And when it comes to tight loose, this started, I started thinking about this during COVID. You can think about two mismatches. One is when groups have actual threat and they don't perceive it. Somehow there's a the kind of memo or the signal gets interfered with and groups don't tighten when they naturally should tighten. We saw a lot of that during COVID and I could get into that. The other is on the flip side, something you just mentioned is the opposite. When actually there's not a lot of threat, or not a lot of severe threat, but actually it's being amplified and manipulated. And either of these things are problematic for different reasons. And during COVID, what was really fascinating is during March of 2020, I started writing about this. I wrote a Boston Globe op-ed that was saying, hey, guys, like we need to tighten up. This is a collective threat and this makes sense. And we did this before. And I was like, this place is a hot mess. Like, I remember skiing in Breckenridge and being like, oh, my God, this place is already like a disaster. And then I said, wait a second, like all of our models, computational models show that during actual threat, groups tighten. They tend to tighten. And then I started thinking, wait a second, like we've never looked to see Deleuze cultures take longer to tighten under threat, especially in a context where it's an invisible threat. It's this germ. It's abstract. It's not like warfare, terrorism. And so we started doing some modeling early during COVID and actually could see that looser cultures were taking longer to tighten and had a higher mortality rate. And then we started collecting a lot of data across 57 plus countries and we found that loose cultures controlling for so many different things because we wanted to see that this really culture that important as compared to other things like inequality or wealth or government structure, other things. We, we control for lots of stuff. And we still found that loose cultures had about five times the cases and almost nine times the deaths. And what was fascinating, this is in the supplemental of the Lancet piece, was that it was partially mediated by the fact that people just didn't think it was that serious in loose cultures. YouGov had lots of data on a weekly basis of how scared people were of COVID. Much smaller sample, about 20-something countries. But we could still see evidence that, in fact, loose cultures just didn't think it was that important or that scary. So that's a really important issue. And I think in those cases, we really need to really work on how clearly we're communicating about this. Also, to help people know that tightening actually helps reduce the threat. We know that. And it's not permanent. I think people catastrophize, especially in loose culture that prioritize having a lot of latitude. Say, oh my gosh, we tighten now. We're, we're gonna, this is going to be horrible. And, and, and I think we just need better leadership. In, in New Zealand, there was a good example. Of course, lots of reasons why New Zealand did well. But I wrote a lot about New Zealand's ambidextrous response. And New Zealand actually is very interesting. They have a one domain where they're pretty tight, even in a, in a sea of looseness, which is they're very egalitarian. And so if, if someone's, if there are rules, everyone better abide by them. You can't just get around them. And so there was a lot of people calling and reporting on people who weren't following the rules and so forth. That really helped with that strategy. And on the flip side, this other mismatch we talked about has to do with populism. And I think this is really an age old phenomenon. These populist leaders have a, understand the evolutionary impulse of threat and tightness, and they use it to their advantage. They 
amplify threat. They target groups that are actually threatened, like people in the working class. And then they promise they'll return them to a tight order. Um, And that's very appealing. Part of that issue is trying to identify when people are doing this. We recently published a new threat dictionary. It's a computational linguistically derived dictionary. We've been working on those dictionaries for a while. And this is basically a large database of corporate tracking threat talk over the last hundred years and looking at how it predicts different trade-offs, how it uh, affects tightness and economic activity and political shifts and so forth. So I think at the very least, we could start thinking about, wait, let's monitor what language people are using. We have uh, actually data on all U.S. presidents and how much threat talk they've used. We could be mindful even on the internet as we're like looking through our feed, like how much threat talk are we being exposed Mm -hmm. to? Let's be smart as psychologists, use tools that can help us personally. But this is just more generally on this issue of evolution is takes a long time. And so you can imagine that the more we understand these cultural evolutionary mismatches, the better we'll be able to deal with them. Wow. Yeah, maybe one could also just educate themselves better about who are the kinds of people who use threat to their own purposes and threat language versus people who are telling us about a threat because it's out there and they just want to warn us. And I feel like these are very different personalities that are very useful to learn about and differentiate because threats exist, but it's hard to assess which ones are real and how big they are and how to fight them. Yeah, I think one of the biggest surprises during COVID, we did a large intervention tournament that was published in JESP. It was my first pre-registered report where we were studying different messages, nudges, you can call them, both based on the kind of moral foundations type of theory, but also based on Greg Walton's work on wise interventions and like how we can tailor inventions to like make sense to people. We're trying to get people, nudge people to wear masks and tweet about them and so forth. It was a pre-registered report and nothing worked, like nothing. (laughs) And I think that what was fascinating is that we know decades of research have shown that conservatives are more threat sensitive. Actually, Ezra Klein had a whole article about this, interviewing a lot of us about, wait, what's going on with you people? Like you've been studying this stuff in psychology and political psychology for decades. And now you're telling us that It's conservatives that are not attentive to this threat and that none of these, none of these nudges work. And it turns out that lab work has always been divorced from like other factors that are happening, including who, what your president is telling you. And people who are in conservative and tight cultures tend to look at independent leaders very and rely on their advice. And so if you have your own president who's telling you, Hey guys, this is not a big deal, then it's going to be overriding that natural tendency to be threat sensitive. Mm -hmm. So that's again, we're learning as we go. But it is fascinating to think about these classic findings that we have that we were not situating them in a larger social context, a larger multi-level context. And I think that a lot of psychology, one thing that excites me so much about psychology, in fact, it started really in Maryland when I was there many years ago, is this kind of multi-level revolution. It's not just a HLM and statistical tools. It's really thinking about individuals embedded in groups, embedded in regions, embedded in nations, and how all those factors predicting behavior. And often we're looking at one part of the puzzle, but we really need all of these levels when we're trying to understand behavior. Your theory of tightness and looseness exists alongside other cultural psychological theories that have had a lot of impact, independence versus interdependence, a psychology of weirdness, right? Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. Especially that theory was posed as a challenge to academics saying, hey, our research is too weird. We live in a certain academic bubble that is a certain cultural bubble as well. And that is shaping our research. Are you also claiming that academics land somewhere on the tightness, looseness spectrum that is different from other regions of the world and that is impacting our the quality of our research? Yeah, this is such an interesting point. I, By the way, I, I think 
people have been talking about this for decades. It's not something that just happened in the last 10, 20 years. I went to Champagne in the 90s because I had read Harry Triandis's analysis of subjective culture that was published in 1972 and also in American Psychology about how, you didn't call it weird, but there was just, cultural psychology have been complaining about this for literally like 70 years. <laughs> it started a long time ago. Um, I find that it, the idea of applying tight loose to academic disciplines really exciting. And in fact, I've been talking with some economists about this recently. And it was inspired by Lisa Feldman Barrett wrote me an email and said, hey, sweetie, have you been looking at tight loose across disciplines? And does it predict the same trade-off of reliability versus radical innovation? And anecdotally, I hang out with a lot of economists now. I'm like, I think that discipline's pretty tight. And I, I think about the anthropologists that I study. Like that discipline tends to attract people more of the chaos muppets. Can we classify disciplines and even subdisciplines in terms of the strength of norms and look at its consequences? I, I think it's a really exciting idea. And in fact, during a board meeting recently, Eric Krimbar and I, who's an economist, started like mapping out what would that look like? How could we actually study this? So stay tuned. I, I think we will wind up doing some of that. And, and I think the idea of trying to, again, look at the homology of some of the antecedents or consequences would be really interesting to see if we find some isomorphism at this level. I'm curious about other next steps you're planning to do in your research or other things you'd like to see in cultural psychology more generally, something where maybe your theory you think is falling short or there's something that you just cannot figure out, something you're really curious about understanding better. I'm a generalist, so I'm just, I, I've always been a generalist. So when I went to Champaign, which was like in the middle of nowhere, by the way, I always tell people like, you're really going to the university of someone. I went to the University of Triandis and I went to Colgate undergrad, which was upstate New York, also in the middle of nowhere. And I went to work with Harry. And one of the reasons why I love that program in Champaign was it was a combination of social psych, org psych, decision-making and culture. And when I left and I went to NYU after that, I was shocked that the world is not like that, like that these things are not combined. And in fact, when I wind up, when I was interviewing at Maryland, some of the students asked me, like, are you an orc psychologist? Are you cross-cultural psychologist? Are you social psychologist? What are you? And I'm like, I'm not sure I said this, but I know I thought that's a stupid question. Like, I just love, I've always loved interdisciplinarity. And I actually, I've gotten a lot of money from the Department of Defense and the FBI. One of the biggest gifts that I could ever have had, very serendipitous, just stumbling into working on very large grants in the Middle East and elsewhere, where you just get to work with like really interesting people, computer scientists, neuroscientists. I have never worked with a physicist, but I, I have it on my agenda. I just love, so that's just a broad thing. So my research agenda is like pretty diverse. Some of the work we're doing is looking at kind of other levels of analysis. I'm working on a project with one of my postdocs, Morgan Weaving, on how we can understand um, minorities living in tighter worlds. What does that look like? And you alluded to it, like people in high power positions have more latitude. And we've published some work on that, but now we're trying to look at what's that normative load do for people? What is it? Can we assess normative load? Can we look at its consequences? So we're looking at it from the point of view of how do we think about minorities living in tighter worlds? And that includes also other dimensions of social status, like social class. So we can look at, okay, how do we study Social class. I actually think it's curvilinear. Think about really super poor areas could be very much have anime, like you described normlessness. And you think about super rich areas, you can think about them being pretty tight, like Victorian England. And so we're starting to think about how might we study that 
again, yeah. with the antecedents and consequences. The other thing that we're doing a lot of work on is stigma. I, I've been doing some work just looking at stigmas. Part of the psychology of tightness, being different can be dangerous in tighter cultures in general. So we're very interested to understand how people manage stigma in different areas in the world, in Turkey, in China, in Iraq, and all over the world. When people write about managing stigma in the U.S., it's all raw authenticity. Oh, be yourself, reveal your identity. And we think that's probably going to be something that's not as common. And we want to understand what are the strategies people use to maintain their well-being. So we're doing a lot of experiential sampling studies that focus on that. We're doing a large study now on just even basic dimensions of stigma around the world, taking Goffman Global, like looking at across 40 countries, what are the dimensions on which people view stigma and what's universal, what's culture specific. And we're just having a ball doing it. This is like some grad students of mine. And then the other thing that we've been doing is really more on that negotiating tight loose. And I was mentioning, we know certain groups need to veer tight or loose for good reasons, but often groups could get more extreme than they want to be. And as an example, the U.S. Navy was funding me on like how to become more ambidextrous. They obviously have a lot of coordination, a lot of threat. They need to veer tight, but they wanted to insert some flexibility into that system. There's something called flexible tightness. On the flip side, there's like lots of places that are uber loose, as in the Silicon Valley, for example, some online platforms that I've been talking with a lot of how do you insert some accountability into those systems? We can call that structured looseness. And we're not trying to change the systems fundamentally, but we have a new article we've been writing uh, right now for Harvard Business Review that's on this. Like, how do you actually do this? And I love talking about this because it gives you more of that, okay, we have agency, we develop social norms. They're one of our best inventions. Why don't we use them to our advantage? So I'm really used to that space and just change more generally. How do we think about, especially in international development and foreign policy, there's a context that we're starting to get into. So those are kind of things. I think one of the things I mentioned earlier is getting very domain granular with tight loose. I think we've been studying a while ago, very much at the very kind of general level. And people can agree in countries about whether their country veers tight or loose or their region or whatnot. But we also like the idea of looking at profiles across domains. And that's, I think, one of the important future directions in this area is we're doing that for organizations now. Like you can think about what are the domains on which norms exist in organizations, like in terms of language and dress and where and how you do your work and, and other sort of personal norms and organizations. And can you provide a profile so you could see selectively decide where to fine tune the norm strength as needed? So I think that's an exciting proposition. Let's zoom out a little bit and talk about you as a person, because we don't want to reduce our researchers to their research that we have on the show. And our listeners always tell us their favorite part is when people get a little bit personal and talk about maybe some things they're struggling with or they're still confused about, right? It's very easy to look at someone like you, who's published many really impressive, wonderful papers, has this compelling theory, has a tenured position at Stanford Graduate School of Business, and think, my God, she was born and she had it all figured out. And then she did one step after the other, and now she's here. And I imagine it must have been a little bit more complicated. And I imagine that maybe sometimes you also wake up and say, oh God, I don't want to do this right now. Or you get rejected by editors or face any other academic setbacks. How do you maintain your excitement for research and your productivity in the light of all this? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Harry always had three really important pieces of advice for his students. And I really try to live them. I, I, he passed away a couple of years ago and I still think about him every day. And he's really like a role model for life. And 
he, his advice was tripartite. First, he said, be passionate about what you do. And for many of us, that's not difficult. I'm like, just create, I'm, I've been doing this for 30 years. I'm still like hyperventilating doing this work. I just find it to be so exciting and interesting. The second thing that's a little harder was don't be afraid to be controversial. And for Harry, he was really very controversial. Like we all standing on his shoulders. And if he was, hey guys, like this science is really Western psychology and we got to break out of this bullshit and go global. He didn't say that. He was a nice big Greek guy. I'm a New Yorker, so I curse a lot. He said, don't take yourself too seriously. Hmm. And I really try to remember that. It's yes, it's so important the work we do. And yes, we want to work hard. But like, which comes to show me, he was a Buddhist. And I become a Buddhist myself, a practicing Buddhist. And that helps a lot, is to maintain some perspective about this. I also, one of the things that I found really helpful, especially grad students, I love working with grad students. If I were to go back to my former self or my young self, I think you asked me this, what would I have told myself? I always think, wow, I had absolutely no idea how attached I would be to my students. They're like your family. They really are. And I'm very in close touch with my students. These are undergrads, they're grad students, now MBAs and executives. They become part of your extended academic family. And what I used to tell my students, because we got rejected a lot, we still get rejected all the time, is I would say, look, when we're doing these projects, we, we have two different goals. One is our learning goals, and the other is our performance goals. And the learning goals you can never take away. You're going to learn a new skill. You're going to learn how to manage an interesting team. You're going to learn how to write for a certain journal that you've never written for before. Those are things, those are skills that no one can can take away from you. Their performance goals are really un uncontrollable. You really just have less control of them. So it really, I think, helps to map out what are your learning goals? Because we always focus on, okay, we of course want to publish these papers. But for me, I got into the field because I'm like super curious and I love to learn. And that gives me a little bit of comfort. Maybe it's a little motivated distortion, but it's also very comforting to me to help also students get through it. and. I really do think Harry's advice is like perfect because the only way I think I've been able to really last this you know, in this kind of career of criticism, and let's face it, we get pretty negative feedback most of the time, is having a passion. And it evolves, of course. I always was crazy about culture and I'm still crazy about culture. It hasn't really gone away. And I think that really helps me to maintain that spirit of optimism in this kind of sea of difficulty. I think this is the perfect moment to talk about the pickle. Why do you sometimes like to dress up as a pickle? <laughs> I will say that I like to celebrate a lot, like small things. Like, as I mentioned, there's a lot of negative feedback. There's a lot of difficulty that we deal with. So that to me suggests that we got to really celebrate often. And especially when we publish in journals that we're really excited about, but even other things, just like small things. I think it's important to to cherish those moments. And actually this happened a long time ago. I happened to buy a pickle costume because my daughter Jeanette was really interested in pickles. And I was the surprise guest pickle at a pickle Olympics birthday party that Todd, my husband, made for her. So I had this pickle costume. Which, and luckily her friends loved it. And I kept this costume. And I remember when I was working on the science paper, we sent it to science. It went to review. We're really excited. But then we got lots of criticism. We also dealt with those criticisms. But then they sent it out to review again, which is pretty typical at science. And I remember telling my postdoc, Jeanette Alon, at the time, I said, well, if this gets in, but now I'm not thinking this is getting in, then I'm going to dress up as a giant pickle. We're going to take a limousine ride around Washington. We're going to go to a lot of fun places. 
Anyway, long and short, that it eventually got in, and I, I went to her office. I remember that distinctly. I said, I have really bad news. It looks like I have to dress up as this ridiculous pickle, <laughs> and we're going to go around Washington. And we went to like places that were really like uh, hole on the wall places, like Ben's Chili Bowl, and then we went to Four Seasons and the Cosmos Club, and we've done this on several occasions. Um, and I even brought the kids in the limo for a little bit. They were younger then. And then when I got to Stanford, I brought the pickle costume with me, and it's my office for emergencies. And we recently got a, a, a big Templeton grant to study culture and trust, the basis of trust around the world. And I said, oh, guys, we're going to dress up as the John Pickle. And we did it. We started the GSB in the limousine. We went to get some drinks. And then we went up to San Francisco and we celebrated. So I, I think it's just important to celebrate. And I, I always want my students to remember that this is, it's about life. It's not just about work. So we're going to treat it like that we want to really be together and celebrate the wins as much as more in the losses. If you could not be an academic for some reason, what would you be? And you can't be a pickle. It has to be a profession. <laughs> I'd be a dog. No, I'm just kidding. I love dogs. My dog passed away recently. He was 14 and she learned, she, she used to love jazz. She liked Art Blakey and she liked Oscar Peterson. And I wrote my whole book, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, practically with her in my lap. So I always <laughs> talk about dogs. I do want to do a study of culture in dogs someday, by the way. My, my, Colleagues from Germany tell me that American dogs are loose and fat. But in any event, that to be stereotypical. But in any event, it's a really good question because I originally wanted to be a doctor, a physician, and I love medicine. I love the brain. I do some work in cultural neuroscience, you know, because just to get back to the, what I used to love. But I then decided I, I would rather study culture. So part of my wish is if I had like many lives, I would become a medical doctor. Or I might work at the State Department. Like I really now getting more in the space of the of foreign affairs. I was elected the Council on Foreign Relations recently, and I have an appointment at FSI. And I'm really I, that was like actually where I started my career. I went to Champaign. I didn't plan to become an academic. I had no academics in the family. I just knew I wanted to get the best education from the from Harry. And I remember telling Harry I want to become a cross cultural trainer and work at the State Department to train these knuckleheads how to negotiate. And my dissertation was on negotiation. I love the study of negotiation. I teach it and I study it in the Middle East and elsewhere. So part of me is like coming full circle back again. Hey, like I want to get out there and work in the space of foreign affairs. So that is another kind of wish list. I, I, I published something in foreign affairs recently. I like that journal a lot. I think it's interesting. I think psychologists need to be in that space more not just cultural psychologists, but I really am um, excited to try to break out of, just get into that space, basically. You've done something else that academics have strong opinions about. Some people call this thing the most fulfilling thing they've ever done, a new child kind of a thing. Other people call it one of the craziest, most bizarre things that anyone could ever do. You wrote a book. <laughs> you wrote a popular science book. And I know you've written many academic texts before, of course, but before you wrote the book and you have done some other science communication, public science communication. What surprised you the most about writing a popular science book and would you ever do it again? <laughs> I wanted to say, I'm going to back up. I wrote this book for my dad, Marty from Brooklyn. My dad's an engineer, very smart guy, but he always told me, I can't understand a word that you say. Like you, can you please <laughs> speak English? Like you people are so jargony. And I decided to write this book because I really liked so I like the idea of getting outside of that comfortable space of academic writing and starting to really communicate better to my dad. And he read every chapter of the book 
and he gave me comments and that was really awesome. For me, writing a book was really just like teaching. I think that's the metaphor I use. It's like you're just talking about the stuff you find so important and interesting. And I think what surprised me the most was that there was just many different audiences that can resonate to different parts of this this book because there was a lot of different topics, whether it was politics or it was parenting or conflict, it was conflict or COVID or whatnot. Because, of course, COVID happened after the book was published. But it was exciting to get out there and just teach. That's how I think about it. I wasn't very good at it at first. I remember getting trained up by Gareth um, Cook, who was a he was a Boston Globe writer who was writing on, on my work. And I was like, I, I, I better get trained up just to talk to the media because I'm not really skilled at that. And I remember him asking me, we're sitting at Harvard. I was there visiting him. We did a training session. He said to me, look, I'm going to start with the basics. Why'd you write this book? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I couldn't even answer that question. <laughs> so that was a challenge. And it was it was something that just over time I got better at. But it's something that we don't get trained in psychology is to talk to a general audience and be just not too, like, long-winded like I am right now. And just communicate what people need to know. And really, I think it's something that I realized how much I got so enculturated in academia. It's almost like a rite of passage that now you, like, can't talk to people outside of that bubble that I was like, wow, I'm really out of touch with a lot of people and I'm really glad to have done it. So it was exciting to, to get outside that bubble. I probably will write another book, but not for a little while. I think it was good to do it and I'll probably do it again. I, do, I just finished a different book. It's a handbook, Oxford handbook on cross-cultural organizational behavior that's coming hmm. out in a couple of weeks. And, I'm, and I finished a different book on ISIS, psychology of ISIS <laughs> recently. And we also just finished a book on tight loose in Iraq. We mapped out regions in Iraq with my collaborator, Monk of Doug here. So I'm doing other academic type of books right now, but probably we'll get back to it. Maybe write something on ambidexterity eventually. It's so fascinating as someone who also identifies more of a generalist. I cannot ever see myself pursue a career where I have this one niche topic and I study it studiously for the rest of my life. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Wonderful. I know many people who do it. They're wonderful people. It seems like as someone who's very much a generalist, do you get a lot of pushback from other academics saying, oh God, that's so many topics going on. How can you even keep track of all these different topics? And yeah. that's something you, you encounter? Yeah. I remember Harry used to say to me, you have a lot of irons in the fire. And I'm like, if he saw me now, he'd be like, your house is burning down, baby. I mentioned when I first got to Maryland, I think there was that struggle with, okay, I'm someone who really dabbles in different disciplines. But I really always felt like it was just in my blood, like I, or whatever it is, the metaphor. I, it was no one was going to stop me. What it does make more difficult is like your time management. Like for me, I get a little bored if I just go to one conference. Like I'll go to SPSP and I'll go to SES, but then I really like to go to other conferences in organizational behavior, in conflict, in culture. We just started a new society called the Society for the Study of Cultural Evolution. Hmm. And just serendipitous, if I were to say anything about our careers, they're just, it's really hard to make plans. You just have to be ready for pivoting when things come up and present themselves to you. And, and that's another kind of uh, you know, story where I, I got a phone call from David Sol Wilson, who's an evolution biologist. And he said, we'd like you to come to Binghamton and give a talk. And I'm like, are you sure you're calling the right Gelfand? I'm not a biologist. There's a, another very famous Gelfand biologist. And I said, no, we want to talk about social norms. And when I was at Binghamton, we realized, wow, a lot of people he knows, studying culture, I don't know the people I know and vice versa. We just, so we wound up 
doing a workshop at Maryland through the Air Force grant I had. And the end result of that meeting, which was like 25 people from all over the map of space of culture, was that we need to start a new society. And we did. We formed a new society called the Society for Culture Evolution. And I think that's just like how things happen. Like I, I, just one more example that I was in a conference in Hong Kong that Bob Wire had organized on culture. And D.Y. Chui and Yingy Hong and I, who were good friends, were sitting at a coffee break. And we're like, there's no intellectual home for culture work across the discipline. There is for the advances in social psychology, experimental social psychology that feature like big programs of research. So we're <laughs> like, why don't we start one? Let's do it. And then we contacted Oxford and now it's like on its 12th volume. Wow. It's bringing in, I remember talking to Mark Zana about it and just getting his advice. I was like with the kids at Disneyland, just taking a little break from It's a Small World and talking to Mark Zana, like through, walk, walking through that Disney park. And getting his advice on, okay, how did you create this incredible series? And that's what we wound up doing. Like we just, it was based on a conversation at, at, a, at a conference. So I just, I think that's really the way life has been. It's life happens. We make another plan. So just be ready for it. Perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Following Robert Cialdini's advice here on this podcast, let's see if I can convince you to take about five seconds of your valuable time and leave us a quick review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or elsewhere. <laughs> this podcast has been a labor of love by several wonderful young folks here in the department, and we have been surprised by the ever-increasing reach the podcast has had. We are near half a million downloads a year and a half since we started, with tens of thousands of new downloads and thousands of new followers every single month in nearly every country around the world. Help us make even more people excited about psychology by leaving us a review or subscribing to our no spam, all fun substack at Stanford PsyPod to connect with other listeners or shoot us an email with your thoughts or suggestions at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and have a wonderful psyched